Good evening. We are going to start our song service with number 94, thinking tonight about our need for God's mercy and then just how abundantly he provides that for us. Number 94, starting off, we're going to sing one, two, and no, one, three, and four. Going now to 201, O my soul, bless thou Jehovah. All four verses of 201, third verse, a cappella.
turning to 380, Amazing Grace, and we'll sing 1, 3, and 4 of 380. Another very popular one, number 314, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, all three with the second verse a cappella, 314. Our last number, number 121, uh, first verse only of 121.
My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. What a privilege we have to proclaim the mighty deeds of the Lord and the grace that he shows toward us, that we might do that well and unto his glory. Let's join our hearts together in prayer unto him. Let's pray. Father, you do deserve our wholehearted worship. Grant that we might not be distracted from the task at hand, but with all our heart and soul, mind and strength, might attend to your word and proclaim your praises. And when you send us forth from this place today, cause us to go with a song of praise to you in our hearts and our confession of you upon our lips, that throughout the week ahead, we might give you the honor you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Let us stand. Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. To you who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved through Jesus Christ, Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 132 in our Psalter hymnal. 132 stands as 1 and 2, 5, 6, and 7.
Part of the way that we proclaim His righteousness is by confessing with the church throughout the world the truth about God that He has revealed to us. To that end, we use the Apostles' Creed this evening. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Church the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Psalm reading this evening, Psalm 119, beginning in verse 33, and going for the next two uh, stanzas, as it were, the next two sections. The first of those is a plea, you'll notice, for understanding, according to God's law, that that the psalmist might turn away from anything that is worthless, in order that he might thereby embrace God's comfort. We're so easily distracted by the things of the world. And perhaps today, more than, than any generation in memory, there are so many avenues to turn aside into that which is worthless, has no substance, has no depth. And so the psalmist prays that, that God would orient him around the unchanging law of God which teaches us to turn away from that which is worthless and to embrace that which is good and true and pure and holy and eternal. And then the next section is a plea for salvation according to God's good promises. And he promises to respond to that provision by obeying the Lord, by confessing the Lord, by joyfully worshiping the Lord. And shouldn't that be our plea as well? That the Lord would, would save us to the end. As we considered this morning, that the end of His salvation would be our heartfelt, life-encompassing worship and joy. Now this a prayer, like all of the prayers that we find in Psalm 119, that is fulfilled in Christ. He's the one who turns us away from the worthless things that would destroy us. He's the one who writes God's law on our heart, not as that which condemns us, but that which guides our gratitude. He's the one who fulfills all of those promises that God gave His people throughout the ages. And because of what He's done, we 
We're filled with joy. Joy driven by the spirit he has sent to us. The psalmist writes, leading us to pray, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Amen. Let's take up the first stanza that we've read there. And, uh, and sing that as our response from... Our Trinity Psalter hymnal, Selection E of Psalm 119. 119E. As we come before the Lord in prayer, um, just two additional updates. Um, I mentioned it in prayer this morning, but I I forgot to announce it beforehand. Um, Jack Knoll is serving with Reform Mission Services over spring break um, on the disaster cleanup down in Florida, uh, leaving on Friday and returning home on April 8th. So please keep Jack in your prayers during that trip, and uh, please keep in prayer the various folks that are traveling for spring break time and for safe travel. Also, in our announcement bulletin, uh, we see a prayer request for uh, the work of Pastor Ernie Langendoon. He works now with Mexican migrants in uh, southern Ontario, 
and also um, he does some missionary visits in uh, Honduras. Uh, Brother Langendoon served for many years in Honduras, and um, that's a that was for many years a very hard field. It's a an impoverished area, uh, a place where there's a lot of poverty, a lot of cynicism, a lot of gang activity, um, and yet the Lord continues to add new members there, continues to sustain and strengthen that work and cause the gospel to be proclaimed there. And, uh, and Ernie's able to go down there and, and continue encouraging and instructing them, which is a blessing. So let's keep those two works in our prayers as well. Let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we confess that left to our own devices, we would be hopeless. There is so much in the society around us that aims to distract us with trivialities, that aims to prevent us from focusing on the things that truly matter. And even within ourselves, we feel the selfish desire to avoid dealing with matters that are of eternal import simply because they're hard. But Father, we pray that you would turn our hearts unto you day by day, that you would cause us to delight in your word and its glorious truths, that you would fill our minds and our hearts with that which matters and not that which is passing away, and that you would give us discerning hearts, that we might see the emptiness and the folly of wasting our hours and our days on things that distract us from you and serving you and honoring you. We thank you that you have given us access to yourself through your Son. And we pray, Father, that you would lead us to respond aright to what Jesus has done, recognizing the amazing promises that you have fulfilled through him chief among them being that you will be our God and that we will be your people and that you have made us to be a priestly people before you, devoted to giving you praise. Recalling that to us day by day, cause us to deepen our desire to know you, to love you, to commune with you, to worship you, to confess you before the world. And Lord, we pray that you would make that the heartfelt desire of your church throughout this world. There are so many, there are multitudes who die for lack of knowledge, who spend their days, their weeks, their months, their years in waste. Simply focusing on the matters of the moment and steadfastly ignoring the eternal realities that beg them to be noticed. Father, you have given us insight into those eternal matters. You have given us 
the power to focus upon them, the, the knowledge of the misery of our sin, but also of the rescue that Christ has provided. Cause us, your people here at Grace and throughout the world, To be so enamored of you, so overwhelmed with gratitude for what you've done, and so filled with love for our neighbor, that we would be unable to not speak to them of what you have done. That we would be unable to restrain ourselves from showing them the love of Christ and proclaiming your goodness. Father, to that end, we praise you and we thank you that you've given us these opportunities to worship and thereby to learn from your word together. And we thank you for our catechism and Sunday school classes where our children learn and grow in the truth of your word. We pray, Father, that you would bless these opportunities for us to grow as disciples, to grow as your children. And we pray that you would would not merely supply us with the knowledge of the doctrine, but that you would use that doctrine to deepen our love for you our devotion toward you, our relationship with you, so that we would be passionate about telling others. And we pray that you would cause your church throughout the world to delight in growing in the knowledge of their Lord and Savior to that same end that we might tell others, that we might draw them in. And having drawn them, Lord, help us to disciple one another, to minister to one another, not being content with simply knowing that we're saved from our sins, but walking alongside each other in that path of repentance, walking alongside each other as we wrestle through the implications of your scripture on our work, on our families, on our relationships, on our our use of time and money and resources and talent, so that more and more our lives would reflect our love for you and our lives would demonstrate the power of your spirit so that those of the world who don't know you might stand in awe of what you are doing. Father, we thank you for Jack's desire to go to uh, Florida and to serve in the name of Christ there. And we know that there's, there are teams going down there to serve in an effort to recover from the, the hurricane that swept through that state. We pray that you would bless those efforts that through the selfless labor of these brothers and sisters in Christ, those who know you might be strengthened and encouraged, and those who don't know you might see the amazing difference that Christ makes. And we pray that you would raise up teams like this to go to Mississippi, where tornadoes have wrought havoc upon towns and regions where many are mourning and grieving the loss of loved ones and the loss of homes and the loss of businesses. We pray that you would use their, uh, their time of grief to draw them to the only true comfort that exists, that which is found in Christ. And Father, we pray likewise for, for those around the world. We think of the earthquake survivors in Turkey, Turkey and Syria where multitudes are homeless and struggling in the winter weather, where countless families are grieving the death of loved ones and the disappearance and presumed death of many others, many being homeless, many being out of work, not knowing what the future holds. Lord, 
introduce them to those who know the one who holds the future. That they might find and take hold of the hope of Christ. And that life might bloom out of the midst of this death. Likewise for those who struggle in the war zone that is Ukraine. We pray, Lord, that you would cause Ukrainians and Russians alike to find the hope of Christ in the midst of this battle. And, Lord, we know that the the geopolitical realities of that whole situation are complex, but this we know, that you are on the throne and that you're able to turn even the wickedness of man and the warfare of men in a way that brings men and women into the kingdom. And so we pray that you would do that and that you would show forth in that region the compassion of Christ as your people meet the needs of those who've lost everything, humanly speaking. We thank you for Brother Langendoon, for the work that he has done for many years in Honduras and the church that has been raised up through his labors and the labors of others in that place. We pray that you would bless that church that you would bless those who are gathered there and that you would continue to gather your people in that place using the proclamation of the gospel to shine light in a very dark region, to give hope to a people who have no other hope. We pray that you would encourage them and instruct them through Brother Langendoon and also those to whom he ministers in Ontario among the Mexican migrant population. We pray that you would continue to make them open to your word, open to the truth of the gospel, and eager, eager to receive that comfort, that hope. Lord, we pray that you would continue to provide comfort and hope and strength to your people here at Grace. We pray for those who grieve. We think especially of the Vanderveen family. We ask that you would comfort and strengthen them. We pray also for our members who are dealing with long-term illnesses and pain and struggles of various sorts. Those who are dealing with cancer and, and recovering from falls and injuries. But also those, Lord, who are wrestling with depression, dealing with fractured relationships, experiencing an unrelenting spiritual attack that they feel is too great for them to handle. Lord, it's not too great for you. None of those things which afflict us in this world are greater than our King who sits upon the throne. And so we pray that you would meet the needs of each and every one in a manner that demonstrates that you are the one who has brought help. And we pray that you would use those times of weakness and need to enable us to minister to one another. Give us eyes to see the hurt of our brothers and sisters and hearts to reach out with compassion and love to encourage, to comfort, to bless. Grant that we might show forth a love and a compassion that will serve as a reminder of your constant presence. And so, Lord, cause your people to be built up, strengthened, and matured, preparing us both through the service that we give and the service that we receive 
for our eternal life in your presence. Now, Father, we pray that you would bless the proclamation of your word, that through that preaching, we might be built up and strengthened. And we pray that you would cause us to respond to your truth and to your goodness with wholehearted worship and praise. Father, we ask this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing together the remainder of our portion from Psalm 119, Selection F, Selection F of Psalm 119. Well, our text this evening is from Lord's Day 29 and 30 of our Catechism. We're going to look at the two questions of Lord's Day 29 and the first question of number 30 and uh, consider what they teach us about the Lord's Supper. But first, I'd like to read with you two brief passages, Um, the first being from Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, from the end of the chapter, and then we're going to turn back in the scriptures just a bit to 1 Corinthians 10. Now Hebrews, you'll recall, was written to Jewish Christians who were tempted to turn back to the sacrifices and the rites and the worship of old Israel. And this is basically a a long sermon reminding them of the completion, of the fulfillment that was brought by Jesus Christ. Showing them that going back to what they had would be going back to something which points forward to something that's already been done. Right? That, That worship is over. That worship is no longer valid because it pointed forward to something that Jesus has accomplished. And so in... Verse 24 of chapter 9. 
He says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Turning back then to 1 Corinthians 10. Just two verses, two verses, 16 and 17. Now this comes um, in the midst of a discussion. All of 1 Corinthians is in the midst of a discussion about some misunderstandings, some corrections that needed to be made in this church. And uh, previous to this reading, he's warning them against involvement with idolatry. After this, shortly after, he's going to be talking to them about the Lord's Supper and how they partake of it, and also how they interact with one another in the midst of worship. And these crucial two verses, they they speak directly to the Lord's Supper, but also especially to the message that the Lord's Supper brings us. Look at verses 16 and 17, 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now bear that in mind. Because what he's showing us there is is a lesson that we need to draw from the Lord's Supper. So having considered those, Lord's Day 29 takes up our consideration of the Lord's Supper and asks, do the bread and the wine become the real body and blood of Christ? And the answer to that is no. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sin, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, So too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And Paul used the words a participation in Christ's body and blood. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal or earthly life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? 
The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely given through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of the bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, assumptions, assumptions, almost invariably result in misunderstanding. We see it in relationships all the time. Your friend fails to attend a party that you were throwing, and you assume, you assume that it's because you weren't important enough to her, that she found something more attractive to use her time on, and so you don't read her texts, you don't answer her calls, Because you're mad at what you assume was the reason for her absence. But because you didn't answer the phone, you don't learn that she was actually suffering from COVID and didn't attend the party because she didn't want to get other people sick. Or think of the assumptions that lead to stupidity in our culture. We laugh about the absurdly goofy warnings that we find in uh, instruction manuals. Do not use this curling iron in the bathtub or shower. Do not place silverware in the microwave. Do not spray brake cleaner in the eyes. Those warnings are there because someone made an absolutely foolish assumption that cost a lot. We see the outcome, the dangerous outcome of assumptions also in the church. For centuries... God's people were denied careful catechizing in the truth expressed in God's word. They were denied access to the word of God. They were denied even an education that would have allowed them to read the word of God. They lacked access to the truth. And so when they saw the sacraments being celebrated before them, without explanation, they began to make assumptions based on the little that they could see, the little that they could understand. And it led to some deeply wrong understandings of what was happening. And the church, for various reasons, solidified those wrong assumptions as the doctrine of the church, leading to an institutionalized superstition and perversion of these beautiful visual images that God has given us with the intent that they would deepen our love for and our understanding of the gospel. Instead of doing that, they led people away from the truth and into a perversion of the gospel because of assumptions, because of a lack of knowledge. It was to correct the worst of those assumptions that this portion of our catechism was written. Here we find teaching that corrects some of those wrong assumptions by allowing us to see the truth 
about what the Lord's Supper is and what it shows. And what we see is that by the Lord's Supper, God directs us to the heart of our hope. And I would add that hope is not in us. By the Lord's Supper, God directs us to the heart of our hope. That's our theme. And the first thing we see about that theme is that ours is a hope completely embodied in Christ. The context of question 78 are the bread and the wine, or do the bread and the wine become the real body and blood of Christ? The context of that is the Roman Catholic superstition that underlie their practice of the Mass, which is what they call the celebration of the Lord's Supper. In the Roman Catholic celebration of the Mass, particularly during and in the ages leading up to the Reformation, the Scripture was read in Latin, the explanation was largely given in Latin, the people, however, spoke German or French or Spanish or not Latin. And so they witnessed a ceremony, they witnessed a mysterious rite, and no one was teaching them precisely what was happening. The priest spoke ceremonial words, rung a bell, held up bread, and declared it to be the body of Christ. He spoke again, raised an ornate goblet, and declared it to be the blood of Christ. And these elements the priest carefully guarded as though they actually were the physical presence of the Savior. Should anyone ask for an explanation, the explanation they were given was, this is a representing of the the physical body and blood of Christ at the altar in this place. And that by that representing of the sacrifice of Christ, His sacrifice is applied to us as we physically partake, as we physically eat of His body. Eventually they did away with the people drinking of the wine because they were afraid they would spill it. You know, and, and since... Blood is encompassed in the flesh. All you really need to do is eat anyway. The effect of that view was significant and poisonous. The focus of the worshipers was directed to the sacrament, to the bread and the wine themselves, because that, after all, is where Christ allegedly was to be found. That's where grace allegedly was to be obtained. And so rather than looking to heaven, rather than trusting in Christ enthroned above, they're looking to Christ on the altar, to this bread, to this wine, to this physical presence. And they got to play a role. By physically partaking, they obtained union with Christ. Their attitude, their intention, their heart meant little. It was the action that meant everything. In effect, Jesus took a less significant role than the priest and the partaker. But that is not why the Lord's Supper was given. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Romans 14 verse 17 says to us that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but the old Roman Catholic view made entering the kingdom of God, staying in the kingdom of God, precisely a matter of eating and drinking. And as a result, hope was found, not in Christ above, not in the working of the Holy Spirit, but in the physical act that was engaged in, in the physical act that man could take up for himself, which fits with our old nature, right? 
In our pride, in our self-centeredness, we want to take a role. We want, if you want the job done right, you've got to do it yourself, right? And the old Catholic theology played right into that. And believe me, trust me, when I say the old Catholic theology, I'm not, I'm not trying to slander those people over there. That was our church. Those were our fathers. But in truth, the Lord's Supper was given to deepen our focus, not upon ourselves, not upon some earthly priest, but upon Christ. Recall what we saw last week regarding how Jesus instituted the supper. Mark 14, as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Jesus physically took bread, blessed it, broke it, said, this is my body. But of course, He's holding the bread. He didn't physically become the bread. He's using it to demonstrate what would happen to him. He's identifying himself with the bread sacramentally so that they could see, so that they could understand, so that they could grasp the significance of what was about to happen. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it, drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Again, he didn't give them literal blood, but wine, meant to represent, meant to be identified with his blood. By that wine, they could see the significance of his sacrifice. In drinking that wine, they could perceive their spiritual unity with him. The focus in the institution of the supper was on, not bread and wine, but the one who served them. Not bread and wine, but the one who was displayed in them. The focus was on Jesus himself, what he must do, why he must do it, how that sacrifice would bless us. And as the disciples used that sacrament to focus on Jesus, their faith inevitably must grow deeper. But never may we turn our eyes from Christ to focus on us. A reading from Hebrews 9 emphasized... What matters is what Jesus did. His suffering as the perfect sacrifice. His dying as our substitute before God's justice. His entrance into heaven to bring the payment for our sin. His satisfaction by which we now live. All the blood and or the bread and all that the bread and the wine could do is to show us Jesus Christ, but he is the one who had to suffer perfectly for us, who had to enter heaven for us, who had to obtain reconciliation for us. Always it is Jesus we seek, Jesus we trust, Jesus upon whom our faith must rest. Do not focus upon the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, upon the act of eating and drinking. Focus instead on Christ modeled by the bread, on Christ portrayed in the wine, on Christ who is demonstrated to us, brought into focus for us by means of the sacrament. Always our focus must be on Christ. And yet there's another danger. We see in the Lord's Supper a hope that's embodied in Christ, but but also a hope that's shared by us. See, there were folks in the age of the Reformation who who recognized and feared the error 
of the mass, of the Roman celebration, and who swung the pendulum the other way. Some began to regard the sacrament not as a physical embodiment of Christ, but on the other end of the spectrum as merely a memorial, merely a visual aid. Not a means by which we receive the grace of Christ, but simply a, an object lesson of sorts. But Lord's Day 29 addresses that also. And points out that this hope which is embodied in Christ is a hope that also is assuredly embodied or uh, shared by us. And that the sacrament shows us that also. To emphasize that the Lord's Supper is not merely a reminder, not merely a visual aid. Question 79 points to the way that Jesus speaks of the bread and the wine. Why does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And Paul used the words a participation in Christ's body and blood. Notice what we read in Mark 14. Jesus doesn't call the bread a representation of my body, a symbol of my body. No, he says, this is my body. He wants us to identify the bread with him. Likewise, the wine. He doesn't declare, this wine is similar to my blood. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He wants us to identify the wine with his blood. Why? Because he wants us to recognize how truly we share in him. It's far too easy for us, you see, to focus on the doctrine and to keep Jesus at arm's length. We know lots of stuff about Jesus, but do we have a relationship with Jesus himself? We must. We must see that he came for me, that he suffered for my sin, that he died in my place, that he loves me, delights in me, has reconciled me. Jesus wants more than academic pupils who have mastered their systematic theology. He wants, to see, he wants us to see that, that he suffered for us in our place, for our sins. He wants you to truly grasp that God looks upon you and sees His Son. That God looks upon you and sees His Holy One. And that God looked on that cross, looked upon Jesus and saw your guilt, your sin, your rebellion, your defilement. We must perceive, we must know deep down the truth of our union with Christ. But that's not something that we can that readily grasp simply through the knowledge of facts. So he gave the Lord's Supper to display it to us. We heard in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We participate by faith in Christ. We become one with Him like the bread becomes one with our bodies, like the wine unites itself with our very cells. Now any, any one of us can know that academically as a series of facts. But then we take, we eat, We remember and believe. We touch. We taste. We chew and we swallow. We physically engage in becoming one with the elements of the sacrament. And that brings home to us, not just here, but here. 
the reality and the depth and the truth of our unity with Christ. And so we, we see how much he really did love me. Justify me. Reconcile me. And we see also our union with one another. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This too we feel, we experience in the sacrament. I take the bread and I pass it to you and you take the bread. Each one takes a small portion of what we together know was a single loaf. The minister speaks and as one We lift the bread, we open our mouths, we chew, we swallow, we all are joined together to that which was one, united by that single loaf. And so we can see, we can feel, we can even taste our unity in Christ. Because that's what unites us. Look around this room. Yeah, there's a lot of things that unite us. We have a lot of similar interests, but we're so different too. I mean, just the men and the women in this room are dramatically different, right? Not to mention those different talents, different interests, different insights, different perspectives that we all bring. We're radically different. And yet we're united by the thing that matters the most. And that's our faith in Christ, our unity with Christ. Because each one of us is joined to Christ by our faith and by His Holy Spirit. That makes each one of us together one. We must not overlook that glorious lesson of the Lord's Supper. The Christian life is about more than having the correct doctrine memorized. Now, please understand what I'm not saying there. I am not saying that doctrine is not important. It's tremendously important. I think our catechism classes are an immense gift to our children and our young people. It's essential that they know what God's Word teaches about who and what He is and what He has done, about the nature of man in His creation and in His sin and how we're saved from our sin. It's essential that we understand how the Holy Spirit works to draw us to Christ and how we're called to respond. We need to know that doctrine. It helps us to appreciate who and what God is and what He's doing in us. However, the Christian life is not about doctrine. Doctrine serves the Christian life. But that's not what it's about. What it's about is a relationship with the Lord our God. What it's about is entering into the fullness of the kingdom, which is the body of Christ. The essence of the Christian life is relationship with God and being brought into that kingdom. In sin, we isolate ourselves. See that in Genesis 3, don't we? God created man. God brought man into a relationship with the creation itself through that naming exercise. Then he brought man into a relationship with the woman who was taken from his very flesh and bone. They became one. But then sin. And what happened with sin? The man blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. Each of them received their their curse. And part of that curse was a separation, a, a disunity. And we continue to see that. Just as Adam hid from God in his sin, 
So we hide our sins from each other. We erect walls. We put on fake fronts. We say, oh, everything's just fine when everything's not just fine. In fact, maybe everything's not just fine between us, but we're going to act polite. We're going to make it seem like things are just fine when we're boiling, we're seething down below, allowing that root of bitterness to grow. And the Lord's Supper says, that must not be so. The Holy Spirit dwells in both of you. Christ died for both of you. You've been joined together to the Lord Jesus Christ. How dare you allow a root of bitterness to grow up between you? How dare you allow that wall to be erected between you? You must not. The Lord's Supper demonstrates the absolutely essential nature of our unity. And we need to see that. We need to see that in Christ we have been reconciled to each other. We need to know that it's not okay any longer for us to be isolated and alone. We need to see our membership in the body of Christ. That God has joined us to these also imperfect saints. That God has united us to these people in whom He is working. That God will not allow us to be saved apart from them. We need to see that that's of the essence of what Jesus did. He gave himself to save me. And he gave himself to save us. And in the process, he united us together. This is a hope assuredly shared by us. And there's one other aspect of our hope which the Lord's Supper emphasizes. You see, sin turns the focus upon me individually what I can do, what I can accomplish. But God says, you can do nothing but make a mess. So in the Lord's Supper, we see how ours is a hope that is perfectly completed on the cross. The sinful heart in rebellion says, whatever needs doing, I'll take care of it. Self-reliance, that has lain at the root of sin from the start, hasn't it? Instead of relying on God and what He said... Satan gave ear to, to, or Eve gave ear to Satan's claim. Instead of relying on God, what he commanded, Eve determined to test it herself. Instead of relying on God to guide his path and to direct him, Adam listened to his wife. It sounds reasonable. I'm just going to confirm what God said. The truth can withstand scrutiny. We face that same reasonable temptation today. I'm just going to test what God said. Or I'm just going to, you know, trusting in Jesus is good, but, but I want to make sure I do my part. But at the end of the day, that temptation leads to trusting in me instead of in Christ. And that's the essence of rebellion. The false sacrament of Rome supports and encourages that rebellion. To be sure, the Mass points to Jesus' sacrifice. But then it says, now you must act. Christ offered himself. Now we need to represent his sacrifice today. Christ gave the sacrament. Now we have to take that sacrament. Christ did his part. Now you take and do your part. And apart from doing that, then there's no salvation, there's no grace, there's no help. You have to do... That's the essence of the unbiblical sentiment. 
that God helps those who help themselves. Unbiblical sentiment. And it's a lie. It's a denial of the sufficiency of Christ, a denial of the Word of God. In Hebrews 10, just a little after our reading from Hebrews 9, we're told that, now speaking of the sacrifices of old Israel, that every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. They can't take away sin. If they could, they wouldn't have to be repeatedly offered. Right? They could, be, they could stop. But verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. How many of you fathers have admonished your children? Don't show your hands. We all know who you are. Have admonished your children... When they're in the middle of a job and they're sitting there doing a half-hearted job, get up. You can't work sitting down. If you're going to really do the job, you've got to get up and mean it. I said it to my kids. Every one of them's heard it. Get up off the floor. You're phoning it in. You sit down when the job is done. Jesus sat down in heaven because there was nothing remaining to do to obtain our salvation. Verse 14 By a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What he offered on the cross was sufficient for all time. And therefore verse 10 of chapter 10 can say, By that will, by that sacrifice, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But that stands directly contrary to the teaching of the Mass, which says we have to continue doing this. We have to continue presenting that. We have to continue doing our part or it doesn't, it doesn't work. The truth we see in the Lord's Supper is different. The Lord's Supper shows us everything that was necessary has been done. Because the bread and the wine, they point to Jesus Christ. They image Jesus Christ. They demonstrate for us what Jesus did, but they are not Jesus. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Physically, in His human nature, He is enthroned in heaven because the work is done. The sacrifice has been offered. Atonement has been accomplished. There's nothing left to do. And what a comfort that is. That, my friends, stands at the very heart of our hope. Old Israel continually presented sacrifices every single day of the year. Because they were all pointing forward to the true sacrifice. To the one that would complete it all. To the one that would fulfill it all. They couldn't stop offering sacrifices because none of those sacrifices was enough. But Jesus' sacrifice was. Therefore, we can commemorate what he did. We can image that amazing act, but we cannot repeat it or represent it because it's done, it's accomplished, it's over. As we heard in Hebrews 9, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. He doesn't appear constantly every time the Lord's Supper is celebrated. Because the work is done. The sacrifice is offered. 
And the next time we physically see him, the next time we see him in the fullness of his human nature, will be at our death or at his return to judge the living and the dead. Be sure to see that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In the bread we see Jesus Christ. We see an image of who He is, what He has done for us, how dramatically He offered Himself, body and soul. But we don't see the flesh of Jesus. Bodily He is in heaven because the sacrifice is over. In the wine we see the blood of the covenant. We see... We see our unity with Him. We see our unity with one another. But it's not real blood. Because that blood was shed once and for all on the cross. And now it's over. And therefore we can be utterly confident. The fullness of the price was paid. There's nothing for us to add. Nothing for us to increase. It's done. And we have been reconciled. We have received life. Assumptions are dangerous things. So partake of the Lord's Supper not with assumptions and not with superstitions, but partake with an understanding that is rooted in God's Word. And if you do, then you will see the heart of the hope that is embodied in Christ. The hope that is shared by us and the hope that was absolutely completed on the cross. And seeing You must trust, you must worship, you must glorify Jesus Christ who has done it all for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we we stand in awe of you. Your mercy, your goodness, abundant beyond measure. You came to those who deserved nothing but your wrath. And even while we were still sinners, you caused your son to live the perfect life for us and to die as the perfect sacrifice for us. And then you gave us this beautiful sacrament so that we might see a demonstration of what he has done and how he has done it and how perfectly he completed it. And in the partaking of that sacrament, you show us how truly united to Him we are and how essential is our union with one another. Father, enable us to ponder and to understand the significance of those lessons. Strengthen our relationship with you. Deepen our relationship with one another. Make Firm our faith in Christ as we partake. And Father, we pray that you would lead us to respond as we ought. By celebrating, by worshiping, by confessing the goodness of your Son and the grace that you've shown to us. In Jesus' name we pray it all. Amen. In response, let us stand and sing together. Number 201 from our Trinity Psalter hymnal, number 201, we'll sing all the stanzas.
Our offering this evening is for the building fund. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this place in which to worship. We pray that you would continue to bless our use of it unto your glory. That in this place, your church, comprised of bodies and souls, your church, young and old, might be nurtured, built up, and strengthened. We pray that our offerings might be received by you as a demonstration of our gratitude and of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song this evening is uh, hymn number 421 from the Psalter hymnal. 421.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you all peace. Amen.